0: Philippians 4, starting with verse 10, if you'd open your Bibles. Philippians 4, starting with verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that you last have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with the humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having both abundance and suffering need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the reading for today.
1: Grace to you and peace, faith family. We are drawing even closer now to the end of this series that we have entitled Contagious Joy. We've been on it for about three months together as we have journeyed verse by verse through this letter by the Apostle Paul to... The church here at Philippi, and what we have seen, if you've been with us at any time, is after a brief introduction by Paul, and a revelation of his current circumstances, he turns to the Philippians, and he instructs them not only to conduct themselves in a manner of the worthy of the gospel of Christ, but he also instructs them on how to do it as well. He then reports to, uh, he then reports on his desire to come to them. But in the meantime, he is going to send to them Epaphroditus and Timothy. And then in chapter 3, he turns his attention to encouraging the Philippians to press on, to press on towards this this goal of the upward call, uh, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, An eschatological call, in other words, a call until the end of time that will one day transform our bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. Uh, it is then that Paul turns his attention to specific needs in the community in Philippi with what we have been going through now in chapter four, through this list of imperatives. List of commands, now, how now knowing, now knowing all these things, this is how I want you to live. In the last two weeks, we have seen this particular uh, particular in relationship to God's peace in light of our obedience. Verses six through seven ended with the God of peace guarding our hearts and our minds. And then in verse 8 and 9, we also saw last week, it ended with this God of peace being with us. So what we have seen is now that we have the God of peace with us, we have this God of peace guarding us, and this morning, Paul is now going to model what it means to him and how all this works out in his own life. And 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 I think this is extremely important. These indicatives now that we will see, based upon these imperatives that he has just told them, that he wants them to live in the way in which he has called them to live. A list of imperatives, and now he is going to give them a little bit of reflection, even on his own life. And this is the gospel, uh, and this is the I'm sorry, the sermon that I've entitled "A Confident Contentment," a confident. Contentment. Can I just ask you real quick, before we move into this message this morning, how many of you are content? How many of you find yourself content? How many of you find yourself confident in that contentment? Or how many of us actually find ourselves maybe in a part of contentment, but we find this this lack of confidence? Confidence? We find it can be kind of wavering, yes? And I think Paul is going to help us here as we begin to reflect upon him and his life and maybe we can um, look at him and ask ourselves, okay, what is missing in our life so that we don't find a contentment? And I find that that's, very, that's the reason that so many people are hopping around looking for so many things that for this world to provide is because ultimately you lack contentment. For some of you, the reason you lack that contentment is because your heart is far from God. You have no peace. You have no guarding peace of your heart and your mind. And you have no peace with God, and therefore you lack a contentment in your own life. And for the others of you, is that at times you forget that, don't you? Don't we? Yes? That our contentment has been erased because it's in those moments that we find ourselves not at peace with God in our own lives? And then for some of you, you ought, to be dang- you ought to be dangerously aware of this truth. You might be a little bit on the side of being erroneously content. Finding contentment in a life that is only temporary, but to stand before God one day. You may find yourself being told, depart from me, I never knew you you worker of iniquity. So what I want to do now is I want to turn this to this confident contentment and I want us to see it through the Apostle Paul's writings. He begins here by stating his gratitude in verse 10. His gratitude. He says, but, very important, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. But ties us back to what? So if, if I were speaking to you and I were to say, I'm going to say a bunch of things, and then I'm going to say, but, and I'm going to go on, uh, would you ever want me to start the sentence with but? But, you would be asking me, but what? From what? And I think this is a very important for us to be able to understand, because if you don't get this, you could take this idea of chapter uh, of verse 10 through 13, which, which how many times have we seen this? especially verse 13. I've, I've spoken about bumper sticker theology last week, and if there's ever a bumper sticker theology, if there's ever a, a, a coffee cup theology, verse 13 is going to be it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? That's, that's it. We're going to get to that, but, but what we need to understand is what Paul is about to speak is connected necessarily to all that he has said. So the but is going to tie us back to what he said, specifically in verse 9, that speaks of the God of peace will be with us. So whatever it is that Paul is about to bring, that whatever it is that Paul brings Paul to rejoice, we need to understand that that's connected to this peace. And I want you to notice that whatever he is about to speak about rejoicing, I want you to know the object of his rejoicing. The object of his rejoicing, he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now this ought to very much begin to make us pause in this moment and ask us, are we in the Lord? For if you are not, then this message is going to be hard for you to discern. And what is it that brings Paul to rejoice? Now this is extremely helpful for me, especially in light of some of the news I've gotten over the past couple of weeks and some of the conversations that I've had. And what is it that brings Paul to rejoice? Well, he says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. So, I can appreciate this, can you? A gratitude for people who care about you. A heart that displays gratitude when you're made aware that others do care, that others are thinking about you? It has often been said that loneliness is a very dangerous place for the heart of man. Loneliness is a dangerous place for the heart of man. One of my favorite television shows, and I probably shouldn't talk about this, but there's a television show on Netflix called Alone. For those of you who don't know, I love the idea of hunting and fishing and survival and all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of up my alley. Uh, I just love it. And you, you want to know what these are. I was telling my children this as we were thinking about this this week. Uh, it, there's a disclaimer at the very beginning of the thing. And if you don't know what a loan is, they put, I think it's ten men, ten women, ten individuals in a remote place, usually very cold, very desperate, and they make them live there, and the one who lasts the longest wins the money at the end, right? Right? So, the, the, and there's a disclaimer at the very beginning. They are left alone. They're all alone. These 10 people aren't together. They're left alone. And there's a disclaimer at the very beginning, and it says, please don't try to attempt this on yourself. These people are professional survival experts. And do you know, I think the longest that anybody's ever lasted is like 100 days. 100 days. Do you want to know why a majority of them leave? It isn't because they run out of food, it's not because they run out of water, it's not because they run out of shelter. It's because of loneliness. They miss their families. They miss their friends. And I can only imagine that there may be somebody in here, and don't don't mistake in loneliness with being around people. You can be just as lonely being around people as you can as being away from people. Loneliness is a display of the heart. It's where the heart comes in. Are, are you grateful for the people around you? Have you ever contacted somebody in the middle of, in the middle of a week, God, in whatever, uh, whatever way that God decides to do it, brings to your heart somebody? You're sitting there and you're in the middle of your study or maybe you're in the middle of your work and you're, you know, you're doing whatever you do and, and all of a sudden Rick comes to my mind. You know, I need to pray for Rick right now. So I pray for him and I send him a text. Rick, I prayed for you today. You ever, you ever done that? And somebody, they text you back and you, they go, thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you. Uh, I had an individual text me some, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He lives in Washington and he, call, he texted me and he goes, hey, for some reason, God just placed you on my heart today and I just, wanted to, I just wanted to tell you I was thinking about you and I was praying for you. That was very comforting. Thank you. I'm so grateful. But on the other side of that, have you ever done that and then you get, you get lambasted has that ever happened? I don't even know what lambasted is, but it's a word that my grandpa always used to use. He just got lambasted. You know, you'd sit there and you go, okay, I guess that means hit hard or, you know, whatever. But um, I know some of you right now are on your phone and you're Googling lambasted. I will find out later. But Mike, get off your phone. I can see you. So what we... What, I'm, I'm kidding, but, but in all seriousness, have you ever done that, and I'm prone to do that, I'm prone to be thinking about people, especially sick people or hurting people, have you ever texted somebody and go, hey man, I was just thinking about you, well it's about time you thought about me, you haven't thought about me in three months and I haven't heard from you, you're like, I am so sorry for sending you a text, and you come to the point where you, you're not going to send them a text again, right? Because the next text you send them is going to be what? It's going to be something else of ingratitude. Now, maybe that's just me. Maybe it just happens to me because I am such a bad man and I I forget so often. But when God brings me to memory, I want to pray for them. But here, this is not Paul. And I want you to know, may we be a people that are grateful for the people around us. Grateful. Here Paul is grateful for the revival of his awareness, of their awareness, instead of disappointment in the lack of what has been. So how did they display this revival? This would be a good question for you, because it says, now at last you have revived your concern for me. I rejoiced in the Lord, because now you have re- re- you've revived your concern for me. Now what's this concern? Well, we're not told directly here, but apparently the Philippians know. Now, if you were to ask me what I think it is, I most likely believe, and I've, I've read many options on this, but I most likely believe it's probably that they have revived their concern through a financial provision. And where do I get this? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you will see that Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, he says that the churches in Macedonia gave liberally even out of their own poverty. And the indication from the apostle is that the Philippians who were from Macedonia gave to Paul and there might have been a short span of time before they were able to do so again. So Paul reveals that there was a delay, but this delay wasn't in light of them not being concerned for him, but the delay was in the lack of opportunity. That's what he said. He says that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked Opportunity. And here they have been given this opportunity, but I want you to notice very importantly, twice the word concerned is used. First, their concern was revived, and that they were concerned before. And this is a key word that Paul uses to establish and disclose the attitude of those who follow the mind of Christ. And we are told how, we are not told how they lacked opportunity. But we're told that they did. Now, we do know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says that they begged Paul with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. So although they lacked opportunity, now apparently they had, have come back and they have re-engaged Paul because now they have the opportunity to do so. And he says there that, that these people in Macedonia, and I believe that the Philippians were a part of the Macedonian church, and it says this, that they begged Paul with much urging for the favor of participation in support of saints. Man. So maybe it was because Paul didn't have a need. I don't know. Regardless, the point I want to emphasize is that the indicative posture of the Apostle Paul and the indicative posture of the church, the people of God in Philippi, was toward the Apostle himself. So our posture is to be toward one another. And that's our indicative posture, that we would be concerned for one another, that we would love one another, that we would care for one another. And he rejoices greatly in them as, they respond, as a response to their revived concern for him. It's as though the people of God in Philippi couldn't wait to give to be a part of the work of God in whatever Paul is doing, and Paul's reaction in this is what? Is Paul's reaction to rejoice in the gift? Well, well no. No. So Pastor, are you saying the gift is not a good thing? No, I think the gift is a very good thing. But Paul says, the the Paul writes that he rejoiced in the Lord, because see, for Paul his joy is found in the Lord, and in the Lord Paul knows all gifts come. You see, the love of the Philippians for the Apostle Paul and the Paul's love for the Philippians was, is grounded doctrinally in the Lord, in Jesus, and the material gift is an occasion for them to rejoice. And I prayed that this would be the picture of our hearts, that this would be a picture not only of the church in Philippi, but the church in Pensacola. That we would look, we would urge ourselves, hey, help me find out. Help me discover how can I use my gifts? How can I use my resources? How can I give to the ministry that God is doing here? We are excited about what God is doing. We are are wanting God to do it, and I want to be a part of it. And and we come along and we see Paul doing this. As a matter of fact, let me point you to uh, one of the ways that this has worked. And I love this. Uh, Andrew and I tonight, by the way, we will be giving our report on our Uganda trip. We're going to do this by... By telling the story of the Uganda trip which some of it's quite funny some of you've already heard we're going to be talking about the uh, uh, highlights from the trip and then we're going to be talking about some of the opportunities and that's that's kind of kind of the agenda and we're going to share that with you. And the, why are we coming back to share that with you? Well, number one, I think it's very biblical. When you look at the book of Acts, Paul would often come back to those churches and share what God was doing. He would, he would come back to the church at Antioch and he would share with them, go back to the church at Jerusalem and share with them what God was doing among the people. So I think there's some indicative there. I'm never, I don't think it's ever commanded that you do that, but I think it's a good indicative. But more importantly is this. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that you participated in that with us? By sending us with your financial gifts, that that you came along and you were literally on the boda boda with me in Uganda. You were literally there with me as I was teaching. The financial gifts that you were able to give was the financial gifts that we were able to use. Now, if I were to come tonight and I would say, praise God for the money, I could probably be right in saying that. Well, I want to thank you for the money, and I and I and I do. I thank you for the money. I thank you for the resources. But more importantly, I want us to I I am grateful for the Lord that He has called us and He has called us together for the opportunity to do that. And may we be a grateful people. May we be a people of gratitude. Because here's what you find: the people who are at peace with God and whose hearts and minds are guarded by the peace of God are a grateful people so those who have a confident contentment often have grounding in gratitude so are you grateful are you do you have gratitude are you grateful are you grateful for what you have who are you grateful to yourself Do you have gratitude for one another? I can tell you this, that some of the most discontent people I've ever met in my life are some of the most ungrateful people I've ever met in my life. Now, I can't pull that out of this verse exegetically. I can't just grab it and just move it. I'm I'm telling you that out of the experience of my life, some of the most ungrateful people I've met have been some of the discontented, most discontented people. So Paul states his gratitude, and then he qualifies his gratitude by declaring it is a gratitude rooted in contentment, verses 11 through 12. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. One translation reads, I am, not, I am not saying this because I am in need. That's the way one translation starts, verse 11. Not that I speak from want. He's, uh, and the translation says, I am not saying this because I am need. You see, it's not a gratitude for the gift rooted in some unsentled reflection of discontentment. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, he's already told his, this community to do all things without what? Grumbling or disputing. Notice the verb here, and I think the verb is very important, because he says, not that I speak from want, for I have what? Learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. What a revelation for the Philippians and the Pensacolians. He says, the idea that contentment is a learned quality of life. Contentment is a learned quality of life. So what does it mean to learn to be content? To learn, the word here means to arrive at a fact of understanding. So Paul says, I have, arrived, I have arrived at a fact of understanding. I have learned to arrive at a fact of understanding in whatever circumstances I am in. To be content in whatever circumstances I am in, excuse me. Uh, to, get this, beloved. Contentment Paul, th- that Paul exemplifies is learned through experience. I have, I have learned, I have, I have found myself to, to arrive at a fact of understanding to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this contentment is a reflection of, I want to be careful here because some of you are going to say, wait, you're you're contradicting yourself. you got to stick with me. It's a contentment in what we would call self-sufficiency. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So it's a contentment of self-sufficiency. Not in the way that we in our day think of self-sufficiency. We're going to see this in a moment. It is a qualified self-sufficiency. But more importantly, where I want to get to first before we get into that is contentment is learning to see one's life through the lens of a meta-narrative whereby all of one's circumstances are adjudicated by the providence of God's will. Let's get this down because you've got to understand this point. I am firmly convinced that you will never be content until you grasp this idea. It is learning to see one's life through the lens of a meta narrative, of a story, whereby all of your circumstances are adjudicated by the providence of God's will. So, no matter whatever. Whatever situation I find myself in, it had to be sifted through the hands of my Father. It was adjudicated through the hands of my God. And he had to learn it. In other words, that's not going to come naturally. You have to experience it. And now if this verse is pulled from its root, we can easily promote the idea of absolute self-sufficiency. In other words, we could pull this this verse out and say, Look, Paul says, not that I have learned from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. So you need to learn to be self-sufficient. But ladies and gentlemen, this verse is not written in a vacuum. The context here shows that Paul's self-sufficiency is grounded in a dependence on Jesus. Paul is dependent on who Jesus is and what Christ has done, and his self-sufficiency is rooted in that. So this is not, and by the way, this is the core difference between Christianity, one of the core differences between Christianity and what is called Stoicism. Which Paul would go later and he would would object to. It's the core difference between Pauline thought and the Stoics like Seneca. You see, for the Stoic, contentment is grounded in the self. But for the Christian, contentment is not from within, but contentment comes from without through Christ In whom we are dependent so that in Him we can be independent of ourselves and the world around us. Did you see that? So our self-sufficiency is rooted in a dependency. Stoicism says that your self-sufficiency can be found inside of yourself. And, And has not our culture adapted this? You've got to find it in here. And that is where we as the church have come along and we have made dangerous connections to this. Because oftentimes what we tell people is you must find it in yourself. And when we tell people to find it in themselves, we make self sovereign saviors and then we remove the reality that they're in need of Jesus. And we do this to our children all the time. And I want to tell you this, this, this lies a great challenge for our day. Because despite the enormous strides made in areas that bring us tremendous comfort and convenience, look around us, church. Enormous strides and technological advances that have brought brought us tremendous comfort and tremendous convenience. We are the most comfortable and convenient culture on the planet. And answer me this. Why are we such a culture of discontents? Why are we so discontented? The reason that the reflection that so many of our lives are mirrors of continual discontent is because we have yet to learn what it means to be content. We have yet to learn what it means to be content. You see, it's one thing, church, to look out at all the discontented people out there, isn't it? But what is really difficult is to search my own heart and mind and see the discontentedness in me. I don't know about you, but I wrote this in my notes here, and it's so powerful now that I, I almost would prefer just to skip it, but I'm just going to confess I don't under, I, at times, I don't understand how situations will just steal me, steal my contentment. One situation, boom. Man, my day could be going great. God could have been gracious to me, woke me up in a house, gave me air conditioning, gave me hands, gave me feet, gave me lungs, gave me breath, gave me life, gave me all these things, and then one phone call, boom, and I turn into a mild discontent. One customer, right? One customer at work, boom, I'm a mild discontent. Is it just me? One thing, one little thing can come in and I forget of who God is and what He's done and I just become a discontent. What I discover, this is is pretty personal, I can't believe I wrote it in the sermon, but what I discover is the true enemy often of my own contentment is grounded in covetousness. Because, see, I don't know about y'all, but in my life, other things are always vying for my affections. The honor. The respect that other people have for other people. I wish I had. The possessions other people enjoy. And you know, oftentimes I, I in some way find that I think those are at my expense. One pastor wrote this, and it really hit me. He said, covetousness, which is a sin, and contentment, which is a grace, will never coexist in our lives. Covetousness, which is a sin, and contentment, which is a grace, will never coexist in our life. A heart that is covetous is incapable of understanding that it is in the light of God's providence that gifts, honors, and abilities are dispensed. and 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 the purposes of god who who gives certain peoples with honors and 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 abilities and all these things the the purpose of of god who gives certain peoples honors and 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 others and grants abilities to others becomes a reflection of our wicked heart isn't it Because covetousness is always upset at the happiness of others because it's rooted ultimately in the distrust of God's providence. God, listen, when you become covetousness, I just want you to know what we're saying, church. You're saying, you're not just sitting back on your little chair going, huh, I wonder. You're pointing your finger at God in His face and you're saying, God, you made a mistake. I deserve what you gave other people. You see that? I deserve what you gave them, and you are wrong. So what does that make you? Ladies and gentlemen, this is often what I tell, I tell children, often what I've told my own children, what I've told uh, other people's children, what I've told children, uh, people who have worked for me in employment, people that I tell the church, as I'll say this, I tell children that, hey, uh, son, if, if you want to be the father, and, but I'm the father, and you want to be the father, what does that make me? Because I've, I've lost my role here. If you're going to tell me what to do, and, and I'm the father, then you're the father, because you're telling me what to do. That makes me the child, and now, now, we, have a, now we have a problem in this, in this, in this whole situation. Hey, if I'm the leader, if I'm the employer, and the employee comes to me, and they, says, they come to me and they say, hey, you need to do this. Well, it seems like you're the employer now, and you've employed me. So if you've employed me, then I'm not the employer. So what does that make me? If you're telling God, God, you did wrong, and you had the authority to tell God what he did was wrong, you had the moral right to exercise that power to tell God what he did was wrong, then that makes you God. So who does that make God? You see what I'm doing here, right? And by the way, this is why no critical theory will ever result in a restored culture. And our culture today loves to talk about critical theory, whether it be critical race theory or critical whatever theory. It will never result, never result in a restored culture. Why? Because critical theory is fundamentally and foundationally rooted in covetousness. Why? Because we are utterly incapable of knowing who we are and what we are, so we become so busy it becomes someone else, we will never achieve anything. Beloved, when you know who you are and whose you are, contentment is the result of the learned experience. So, so I wonder how many in here right now are looking for an escape patch, right? You're looking for an escape patch. Pastor, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand what I'm going through. You're right, I don't. I'm not trying to. Pastor, listen. Pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've been told this. I can't be content. Matter of fact, i got family members who have told me this. I can't be content. Why? Because I can't be content until I get what I want. And let me tell you this, you will never be content. There's no escape hatch for you. Watch what Paul writes here, I love it. He writes, I know because his contentment, this is what I'm getting at, this is why I say that, Paul writes, and this is the context before you start throwing stones at me, or tomatoes, he says, Paul writes, I know how to get along with humble means. How does Paul not give us an escape hatch? Watch what he does. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. Now, where would Paul get such an idea? He knows how to get along with humble means. Humble means. Have you heard the word humility before? Now, we've studied this. If you've been with me, you remember in chapter 2, verse 8, we were told, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Not only is it the example of Christ to become humble, but it is in the teachings of Christ that we are to become humble. You remember in Luke chapter 14, Jesus' is teaching in verse 11, Jesus when speaking uh, of not of taking the place of honor at the table, but taking the last seat, Jesus said, For everyone, listen, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It was not only the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, it was the teaching of the other apostles as well. But with it, I think, comes some clarity. And I want to point you to these two. Turn with me to, uh, let's go first to James. James chapter 4. Old Jimmy. As Martin Luther would say, Old Jimmy. Listen to James. It comes with great clarity. It helps us see this. Because remember, Paul says, "I have learned to be content. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. And in verse 11, I'm in verse 10 of chapter four of James, he says this, "Humble yourselves, here it is, in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you." Did you hear that? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you." Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter five. First Peter. Chapter 5. Read verse 6 with me. Therefore, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, what does he say? Humble yourself, what? Under the mighty hand of God, what? That he may exalt you at the proper time. Now watch what verse 7 says. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now there may be more here, but it is certainly not less than the truth that Paul finds contentment in humble means because after all, we are called to be a humble people as a reflection of our Father and our King Jesus. So I have learned to live in humble means because I know what it means to be humble. How do I know what it means to be humble? Because my Savior was humble. My King is humble. I can be humble because I know what it means. But then, Paul comes back, I'm going back to Philippians, he says, I know how to get along with humble means, oh, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And I also know how to live in prosperity. The idea of prosperity here is the idea of having surplus. In other words, the idea of having an excess over and above that which I need. How many of you in here are living in prosperity? In other words, you have an, ex- an excess of things in which you, in which you need. Not in, I'm, not, I'm not saying what you want, I'm saying in what you need. It, and the problem is, is that so many of us have lived in prosperity for so long, when, we, when a metric of our prosperity is taken away, we think we're living in humility. Ladies and gentlemen, you haven't seen living in humility, in my, in my humble opinion. I, I, I have seen some humble living experiences. So I come to this passage, and I don't come to this and go, man, Paul, teach me something about what it means to live in, in humility. Because I have, lived, I, have lived, uh, I have lived in poverty in my life, American poverty. My mom and I used to go to the manna food bank, and I'll never forget going to the manna food bank. There was a bread shelf. And on that bread shelf, you had loaves of bread, and you had pies, and you could choose. You had one basically ticketed item for bread, and you had to choose this for your family, and you could come, I think it was once a week, once a month, I don't know, I was real young, but I would go to that thing, and I would go, Mom, let's get the German chocolate cake, let's get the German chocolate cake, and she would say, no, son, you can, you, we, we have to get the bread so that we can make sandwiches for lunch. I was the most discontented kid leaving that place you could ever imagine. I'll never forget in the days in which I was growing up, my mom working three jobs, we would go to the grocery store and she would pay with these check things. And I didn't understand what they were. But I could only get food from the yellow section. Now for those of you who don't know what this is, don't worry about it. But you can only get food from the yellow section. It had to be marked with a yellow sticker because the yellow sticker told us that we could get food from there. So I would like, oh my gosh, mom, I could get all these food. Yes, but Donnie, we can only have limited amount of money. I grew up and I realized that I was on some sort of food stamp program, welfare process. But you know, out of all that, there have been days, I I'll, I'll, I'll have stories where my mom, would we would go and we would buy spaghetti. This is what we would do. We would buy all the spaghetti noodles we could. We would buy all the hamburger meat we could because that was the cheapest thing in the day. We'd buy, and it was the bad hamburger meat, not the good stuff, right? It was the bad hamburger meat. So we would buy spaghetti noodles, hamburger meat, and pasta sauce, and we would make spaghetti on Sunday afternoon, and we would eat spaghetti on Monday, we would have spaghetti on tuesday and then you would have spaghetti sandwiches on wednesday it would start to get crusty so listen to what we would do we would take the spaghetti put it in a pan and fry it and then we would be able to basically uh, solidify the bottom of the spaghetti hey you can do this with ramen noodles too we learned all kind of stuff you can do with ramen bro so we would put the spaghetti you would flip it and you would make like a crunchy spaghetti stuff and that would be our Thursday meal, and then and then Wednesday would be more spaghetti, and then Friday. I've been I I've 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 been there, guys. I've I, I've been at the place where the only place, the only the only drinks you could drink were the the dollar drinks, you know the the soda uh, the colored do, uh, dollar drinks that you get at the general store. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't even get Coke, Coca Cola. We didn't even. I, I would look. I would go over my friend's house. True story. I'd go over my friend's house, and they would have like Coca Cola, not Sam's coat, not Walmart coat, not 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 the the Coke at the general store. I'm talking Coca-Cola, the red and the white Coca-Cola. I was like, oh boy, we're gonna drink good today. So I have had that, and let me tell you what I have learned to live in prosperity. I'm still I was still living in prosperity because some of the poorest people in the states today are richer than most of the uh, than most of the world today. So I'm coming to you and I'm saying, I have learned to live in I I don't even know if I've learned to live in humility yet. God has been so good to me, I have only known what it means to live in prosperity. See, it's a change of mind. And you don't think I'm grateful? You don't think there's a gratitude in my heart? I have learned to live in want and I have learned to live in need. And by the way, this right here is so helpful for us as a church. It is so helpful for us. And the reason I say that is because it does two things right off the bat. It absolutely repudiates the false gospel known as the prosperity gospel. Although God desires for us to always have health, wealth, and prosperity, which is absolutely rampant in our, deci- uh, in our society. Paul says, I have learned to live with humility, I've learned to live in humble means. But it also repudiates the false gospel known as the poverty gospel. As though God's desires for us to always to be in want, abased, or poor. Because Paul says, I have learned to live in prosperity. I've learned to have excess. And by the way, I can tell you if you have excess. How many of you went to your cupboard today and you had choices? How many of you went to your, went to your closet today and you could choose your clothes? You have access. Ex- so welcome. But whether, whether, and what Paul's saying is here, is whether I live in humility or whether I live in prosperity, Paul writes, I have learned the secret of being filled. I have learned the secret of being satisfied. I have learned the secret of going hungry. I have learned the secret of craving. And to learn the secret is is more of a technical term for initiation. So what was Paul being initiated into? I have learned the secret of having abundance, which is the same word used above for prosperity. And I have learned the secret of suffering need, or to be behind, or to come short, or to be in want. Paul says he is unaffected by poverty and he is unaffected by prosperity, which is is found by one who walks in Jesus Christ. And do you get this, church? We who walk with Christ find His providence to be sure and His sovereignty to be final. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And if you are not there yet, you need to learn it. Learn it. Come to the understanding. So there's gratitude, there's contentment, and finally, here's where we see the confidence, verse 13. This is the summary for why he is able to find contentment. The summary for why he is able to find contentment is because I, Paul, can do, which means to be strong in, to be enabled to do. I, Paul, can, I'm enabled to do all things. I have been given the ability to do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me, who gives me strength, or the word means to empower me. And here, I believe that Paul is referring directly to that indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And there are not many verses more maligned and more misrepresented than this verse right here. Paul is not making a statement about the spiritual ability of a Christian. This is not grounded in the false gospel of naming it and proclaiming it. Because Paul just said he knows what it means to be humble or prosperous, filled and hungry, abundant and wanting... The entire passage is discussing economic matters in light of whatever God may providentially direct. So the capacity to do all things means in Christ, Paul could do all things including humility, hunger, and want. So don't go out here in today and saying, well, I can do all things so I'm out. Watch me. You know, that's the the new thing. I can do all, you know, you get people, I can do all things through Christ. Watch me, boy. I'm out. I'm going to bust out of here. I'm going to do all things. You're taking the Bible totally out of context, which is not, by the way, don't don't let that shock you with uh, heretical preachers and teachers. That's exactly what they do. They take the Bible out of context. That's the reason they only usually preach from one verse. You go to a you go to a message like this and, and a person will come in and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then they take that one verse and then they give you ten points on doing all things through strengthens him. Bunch of hogwash. There is a warning here, by the way. There is a warning. There's a warning for us in our faith family because that's who I preach to. Listen to me, beloved. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Don't dare think that you will be able to cover your stupidity and reckless actions with some blanket promise of God's empowerment. Don't think you will be able to cover your stupidity and your reckless actions with some blanket promise of God's empowerment. I'm going to say something that's going to offend some people in this room. And to the offense, I say, take it up with Jesus. How many times have you been around people who they say something to this effect? God told me. The Spirit told me. I want to caution my church in listening to what I'm about to say. If you say out of your mouth, God told you, or the Spirit told you, you better well do it. Number one. Number two. If in the future... You come back and you say, well, God told me, but it didn't quite work out like He told me it would. You don't need to be blaming God. You need to come before your elders in repentance of being a false prophet. Do you hear me? That's why we say the canon is closed. Because the prophets are gone. There are no more people speaking forth God's Word in a way that is new revelation. The apostles were the New Testament prophets. They were able to speak and to write in that moment, in that time. The canon is closed. God tells me right where He has told you. And I have said this before and I will say it again. If you want to hear God speak, read His Bible. If you want to hear Him speak to you audibly, read it out loud. We need to, we need to, you you need to hear me. We need to be very, very, very careful as a community of faith when we start playing games with God told me. Do you hear me? Because you're speaking about our God. And when you're saying that he told you something, you're putting his name and reputation on the line. So don't dare think that you're going to cover your stupidity and reckless actions with some blanket promise of God's empowerment. You know, uh, I'm, going to go, you know I'm going to go buy this new car. Well, you don't have the money to buy that car. God said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Well, he also, did you know that the verse before that, he told you how to be poor, right? <laughs> you know, how to live in humility? No, I need a car. Okay, well when your car goes back from foreclosure or from uh, repossession, don't be blaming God because I'm telling you right now, God didn't, there ain't none of that. You see how we can get it all warped? You see why I don't listen to TBN? For Paul, he is saying he can do all things. And why? Here it is. Because God's will has led him through all things, and through that leading, he has learned it. That is so crucial. Paul is saying, I can do all things because God's will has led me through all things. In other words, what are the all things? Whether wealthy or whether humility, right? Because God has led me through them, and I have learned that through them he has led me, and I I have learned to live in it. You see, for Paul, in his weakness, Christ was made strong. And for Paul, his independence was provided by his dependence on Christ. It is a rather remarkable passage. Do you know that in those verses, 10 through 13, in those four verses... That there is not one imperative. There is not one command. After so many commands, Paul here seems to go silent in commands. He has none. He is just reflecting on his gratitude and his contentment in light of his total dependence on Christ. Confidence. or dependence on Christ brings a self-sufficiency that results in contentment. It is the absolute Christ-centeredness of Paul's life. And as a man who lives in Christ, that regardless of his status of plenty or his status of want, he is still a man in Christ. And he understands that what Ever may come his way that it will be a part of the sanctifying process of discipleship by Christ in a room like this I am confident that there are those in here who are living in relative poverty and I say relative poverty I am confident that there are those in here who are And I am confident that there are those in here who are living in relative prosperity. Where in our lives are we grateful? Are we displaying a life of contentment? In the everyday moments of your life where doubt, fear, and shame creep in, do you discover a confidence rooted in whatever the circumstances may be, that through Christ and in Christ I will now be enabled, empowered by the one who will provide me the strength? Or do your hearts like mine, so often and so quickly, find this sort of faithless coveting and ingratitude? You see, Paul's not commanding anything here. You want to know why? Because Paul is just merely reflecting on who he is in Christ. So who are you? Where are you right now? Beloved, it doesn't take me long before I come to a message like this and I realize i realize the Scriptures hitting home to me. I think I'm grateful, and you know what? If I if I were to be honest with you in this moment, I look back on this week, and I have spent I have focused I have spent so much focus in this past really two weeks. This week was a little bit different. The kids went back to school, so uh, uh, well the kid kid went back to school, and I can't say kids anymore. Uh, the boy. He went back to school, and so a little bit of our rhythms have been changed. But I really, I would say, over the past two or three weeks, I have spent, I have given my, giving my mornings specifically in my devotions to starting with gratitude. I just want to be a grateful man. I want to be grateful. And the moment that things begin to creep in, I try to remind myself: be grateful, be grateful. And do you want to know what happens? You want to know what happens when one discovers themselves overwhelmed with gratitude? There's a, there's a peace. There's a contentment. So I don't know where you are. I don't pretend to. And if you are here right now, maybe, maybe you look at this and you hear this message and you go, you know, Donnie, I'm, I'm a grateful person. I'm content and I'm. I'm all these things that you've told me and man, you know, here's what I would say to you. Praise God and, and just glorify Him in the next few moments. Just thank Him. Be more grateful. Thank Him for His abundant blessing. But if not, if you're like me and you find in these moments that, you know, Donnie, there are times in which the past week that I have, that my indicative has not been one of gratitude and contentment. It's been more of ingratitude and covetousness join me join me as we stand and let us confess our sin before God together as we approach his table reminding us that ladies and gentlemen the only way we're going to be able to find our gratitude and contentment is in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross of Calvary so if you're here right now let me explain this to you if you're here right now and we're about to respond to the message preached there are two ways to respond to this message the Bible says this, that if, you were to confess with you, that if you were to believe in your heart Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that he was raised from the dead I want to explain that in a second then you will be saved. If you believe and you confess if you go back and you study the New Testament confession is always identified by baptism. So what Paul is saying in the book of Romans he is saying that if you believe in your heart Belief, right? Faith. And you confess, which means to be baptized, right? Why? Why is baptism so closely related? Well, it's because that is the confession of your belief. It is the reality of that. So I call you to this. I call you to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, to believe and to be baptized. If you would do that, we would celebrate God And His grace and His mercy upon your life. Would you like to be saved this morning? You can right where you are. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart, excuse me, and confess with your mouth. Come, follow through in baptism. If you are um, in here and you are not a believer, we want to call you to that. And this next part is for those of you who are believers. Those of you who have confessed. Those of you who have come to Christ. Now we are going to approach the Lord's table. If you are not a believer in here, you want to push away from the table, we would respect that. We just ask that you respect the fact that we ask you not to participate. And for those of us who are believers, before we partake in these elements that are a display and a symbol of Christ's body and His blood, that we would just take a moment. We would confess our sin before our God. And and today it would probably be in areas of ingratitude and discontentment and covetousness, and we are going to go before him, and we are going to pray, and then we are going to participate in this table. If you are a believer in this room, we would ask for you to come and participate with us. Before we do that, we do not want to partake in this table in an unworthy manner, so let us go before our great God and King, and let us confess our sins before him once again. Let us pray.